Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today's episode is going to be a solo cast in which I'm going to cover the topic, the way of Jesus as perfection in love. We're going to take a deep dive into one of the most interesting things that Jesus said. In Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that uh, verse has both terrified religious people and inspired them. And I wanted to talk about what that looks like in terms of becoming perfect in love. Before we jump in, let me remind listeners, especially those who are interested in Centering Prayer, that I host, along with a fellow Centering Prayer author, Rich Lewis, a monthly Centering Prayer gathering. We meet on the second or the third Saturday of most months. Uh, So this month, it'll be February the 18th. We meet at noon Eastern time, and uh, we'll be covering the topic of divine therapy on the 18th. If you'd like to be added uh, to the mailing list for that, please sign up at uh, www.centeringprayerbook.com. Uh, Also, any of the resources mentioned, you can check out in the show notes. And if you have uh, questions about coaching or some of the other uh, services that I offer, please uh, take a look at my website, brianrussellphd.com, or you can email me directly at deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. Let's talk about the way of Jesus as the way of love or the perfection in love. Uh, I want to start with a reading of a biblical passage. Again, I'm not giving a sermon today, but I do want to root this in a text. And this is a powerful text. It comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous blocks of teaching that Jesus ever gave. In fact, it's misnamed. This wasn't a sermon at all. It actually says in Matthew chapter 5. And by the way, the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to read the whole thing, is Matthew chapter 5 verses 5 through uh, chapter 7. So Matthew 5 to 7 would be the Sermon on the Mount. But interestingly enough, at the beginning of chapter 5, it just says Jesus sat down and began to teach. So this is actually the teaching on the Mount. And Jesus taught uh, his disciples, and there was just a a large crowd around that listened in. But when Jesus teaches in Matthew's gospel, he's essentially speaking to the his disciple circle itself to try to help them to grow. Now, let's listen to this text, and then I'll back out, give a little context, and then we'll take a deeper look at some of the language. Uh, Starting with verse 43 of chapter 5, Jesus uh, is quoted as saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, What more are you doing than others? Do not uh, even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father 
is perfect. Now, now context, as, as we mentioned, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Matthew or the Sermon on the Mount itself, Jesus starts out the Sermon on the Mount with a series of Beatitudes. These are also some of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. Things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So Jesus goes through a series of Beatitudes or Proverbs where he's describing one of the key concepts, uh, uh, which is the concept of the kingdom of heaven. And, and by the way, um, this is one of those things that I would say 85 to 90% of Christians don't actually get, which is the whole kingdom message of Jesus. Uh, because here's the reality. Most of us think of Jesus as the founder of Christianity, uh, founder of a religion. But here's the truth. And again, most Christians don't even know this. Jesus didn't actually come to start a new religion. Jesus came to announce and embody this kingdom message. And when we hear the word gospel, when you hear like, well, the Christianity is good news. Well, what's the good news? The good news is this. The kingdom is at hand. And you're thinking like, well, how's that good news? Well, Jesus in his life and his death and ultimately through his resurrection, he was all about announcing and embodying and signifying the reality that God is beginning to do a new thing in our world. And Jesus calls disciples then to become part of that new thing. And that's the process of recreation. It's the process of experiencing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And those of you who are just hearing those words may say, that sounds like the Lord's Prayer. That's exactly the Lord's Prayer, which also happens in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus's kingdom message is this, that that long-awaited time of God's salvation, and when we say salvation, we're not just talking about forgiveness. That's part of it reconciliation with God, the experience of peace, healing, love, mercy, grace, and all those things that we sort of instinctively long for uh, as humans. That's the promise of the kingdom. And so Jesus's life and his death and his resurrection, uh, for those of you who believe the full message of the gospel, which is not only that Jesus live and teach, and not only did he die on a cross, but he also was raised. It's to demonstrate that the kingdom is present. And when Jesus teaches then, what he's teaching is he's teaching the ethics of what it looks like to be aligned with Jesus. And what you're going to notice here is this isn't a power move. Because when you think aligned with Jesus, does that mean we're against everybody else? Well, that's what it looks like a lot of times, folks. If you haven't noticed, we have a lot of divisions. And even Christians are really good at demonizing and dividing even against other Christians because they're not the right kind of Christians or, or whatever. That's why we have all these denominations. And again, uh, there's a lot of history there, and I don't want to be, make me sound snide or cynical about that. But we just want to notice that the kingdom message isn't about power. It's about faith, love, and hope. Again, one of my favorite sayings, I learned this from Erwin McManus, 
was, and I love to say it, I use it as a benediction, live by faith, be known by love, be a voice of hope to others. That, that sort of crystallizes um, what it means to follow Jesus. And notice it doesn't mean use power to oppress people. The gospel message is about liberation. And here's the thing, there's nothing more powerful in this world than love. That sense of unconditional acceptance of another soul, right? Love. So when you hear this text, when Jesus says, be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect, first we want to say um, that's not, that word perfect there isn't mathematical perfection, right? So this is not some impossible ability, like um, it's not mathematical perfection. Another way to translate perfect here would be um, mature, um, brought to completion, those kind of things, right? And also it's noticed a comparison. It says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, that's where the context is important here. So let me back this thing up again. So be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect. Um, to totally get that, we need to go back a little earlier to the beginning of the argument that culminates in be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, which begins really at 517, right? Now, I read the, some of the Beatitudes. Those Beatitudes, which describe the kingdom, are Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Then you get a, a paragraph that sort of seems like it doesn't fit. It's verses 13 through 16, where Jesus uses, again, probably two famous images. He talks about to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And he's, and he's uh, the, along with the light, he talks about you don't want to be a, um, uh, you, uh, you want to be a city on a hill, right? That even, that was part of the founding of the United States. The, the Puritans wanted to be that city on a hill. It's one of those famous speeches, but working off of Matthew. Um, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So notice Jesus' teaching is all about a life that demands explanation. It's one of my favorite phrases. And what do I mean by a life that demands explanation? It's living in such a way so that when people look at us, the only thing that they can figure out is like, what's the explanation for this? It's like, oh. It's God. That's a life that demands explanation. When your life points to something bigger, more beautiful, more loving than yourself. That's the goal here, to be a salt of the earth, seasoning, a preservative agent, and a light of the world. Illuminate, point to something bigger than ourselves. That's the whole point of this. So this whole point of perfection isn't like, oh my gosh, someday I'm gonna stand before God and I'm gonna be on a scale and, I, and if I don't measure up, I'm gonna get tossed into hell. That has nothing to do with this. This is all about witness. The gospel comes, the good news comes to us on its way to someone else. I'm transformed so that other people can give glory to the one who did the transforming. I grow in love 
uh, again, not so I can be accepted by God, but so that I can love other people so that they can know God. All right, so that's the context. And then the thing that Jesus is getting at is the comparison. What Jesus does in 517 to 48 is he walks through a series of statements. You've heard it said, but now I say. And Jesus is trying to train his disciples into how to understand um, the Old Testament, if you will, and in particular, how the religious people of Jesus's day, though they had access to the scripture, got it wrong. And so uh, an interesting verse that contrasts with 548 is 520. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you think scribes and Pharisees, well, those, those are the religious leaders. And here's the thing. If you were a commoner, if you were just a regular person in Jesus's day, you would have thought the Pharisees and the scribes were the finest people that you had met. They were all in. They lived strict lives. They had a mission. They wanted to help their fellow um, Israelites or fellow Jews to uh, be ready for when the kingdom would come. And they were very strict in the way that they took the Old Testament and applied it into their lives. And if you're a member of a, of a church right now, essentially what the Pharisees did is what we as pastors do a lot. They read the Old Testament or they read the scriptures and they found ways to apply it so it had an ongoing relevance. Because even by the time of Jesus, some parts of the Old Testament, they were written assuming a certain different kind of life. They had to be reappropriated so that they could be applied to be made meaningful in that first century context. So the Pharisees took the teaching of scripture and they interpreted it and built out a whole system. So sometimes when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, this section, Jesus will say, you've heard it said. And sometimes the things that he says, you're like, well, that isn't exactly what the Old Testament says. That's because Jesus is, is, is sort of riffing off of both the Old Testament and then also about how that those texts were, in, uh, were uh, interpreted by others. So we see that in Matthew 5:43, where it says, you have heard it said, um, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. There's nowhere in scripture where it says, hate your enemies, but it was an inference because neighbor would end, ended up being um, defined narrowly. And again, let's be, let's be honest, life is hard and it can be dangerous and there are enemies out there, but they had created the ethic, love your neighbor. So that became the in-group and then hate your enemies. Well, Jesus is going to flip that on your head. And by the way, you can go back to Leviticus 19 to find the original statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And just to give you a sense of how radical that is, when you look at Leviticus number uh, Leviticus 19, Jesus gives uh, protections and he talks about, you know, who's your neighbor? That's always the question. Uh, but Jesus talks about um, things like making sure you don't overpick your crops so there's food for the poor who can glean through there. Um, no oaths. Talks about justice for everybody, both the poor and the rich, and not to discriminate against one or the other based on their social economics. Talks about um, avoiding um, promises, um, not um, 
abusing people that have physical disabilities. So there's just a whole list of protections that are there. So love your neighbor as yourself. But again, back to the Pharisees, they tried to master this. They had all of these principles. And so when Jesus says, um, if you're righteousness, and what does righteousness mean? Um, it's, um, when you read the whole Bible, there's, you always want to know what the author means. In Matthew's gospel, what he's talking about is um, behavior that models the kingdom. It's the way that I would say that really simply. So it's not, um, so righteousness is the right actions that a person takes that models essentially the way of Jesus for others. And so when people were hearing that, they're thinking like, oh my goodness gracious, I could never possibly have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees because, geez, they do all this stuff. But here's the thing, friends. This be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect cranks that whole thing up a notch because it basically says that kind of righteousness isn't radical enough because it has the wrong comparison. Our models for righteousness aren't Pharisees. Again, we usually think of them as bad because they were Jesus' opponents, but we would have liked them. They were the most religious, devout people you would have known. But they, they weren't radical enough. The model is the Father. It's God. And Matthew 5.48 sort of restates what you find in Leviticus 19. Again, Leviticus 19 is where love your neighbor as yourself shows up in verse 18. But if you go back to the first couple of verses, it says, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. So the standard isn't what a scribe and Pharisee does. The true standard is God. Now, this is where language is super important. We're not talking about mathematical perfection. We're not talking about my behavior is exactly like it would be as if I were divine and all-knowing and all-powerful and all of those things because we're still create creatures, we're frail, we're humans. But here's the thing. The comparison isn't to be religious people who essentially create systems that make obedience actually easier. Jesus wants to get to the heart and point to what true faithfulness, what a true life looks like that demands explanation, that points to the Father. And again, uh, some folks don't like to use Father language for God, and, and, and I'm deeply sympathetic for that, so I'm just going off the biblical text, so I apologize if, um, if, if, you didn't, if, if the word Father isn't a good one, because I know lots of people that didn't have good fathers, that fathers that did things that fathers shouldn't do. Um, but the text is doing that, though, to soften something. And that's why it's important. This is a parental image. This is relational image. And that's, it makes all the difference when we think about what perfection does. Because this is what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say be perfect like the judge is perfect. It doesn't say be perfect like your heavenly king is perfect. It doesn't say be perfect like the heavenly prosecutor is perfect. It says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we're talking about an ideal image and it's relational because anybody who's a parent knows um, you can have 
expectations and obligations and house rules and all of those kind of things. But, you know, if you have a child who breaks out of what you're hoping for, a, a good father never gives up on their kids and their love is unconditional. So it's be perfect like that kind of God is perfect. And then let's start looking at this text itself. So what's it mean to be perfect in, what, in the way of Jesus as perfection and love? Notice what it's like to be like the Heavenly Father. And this is where it gets really interesting. Uh, again, Jesus is riffing off of this um, interpretation that would have been common and nobody would have been offended by it. The idea that love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But then he basically deconstructs that by making some no-brainer observations on why that is a ridiculously low-bar effort at modeling God to the world. Because first of all, God himself doesn't follow that teaching. Because who's God's enemy? Who is God's enemy, right? And if it's just people that we don't like and that makes them God's enemy, then who's really God, right? So notice, what's Jesus say? He says, look at God, okay? You want to love your neighbor, hate your enemies, but um, I'm just noticing what God the Father does, and uh, God doesn't seem to follow that because God sins makes the sun come up on the evil and the good. You know, so the sun doesn't decide if it's going to pop up in some part of the world, depending on whether everybody there believes in Jesus or if they follow the Ten Commandments or they don't. The sun comes up everywhere. Then what about rain? It says God sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Yeah, you know, droughts come, but, you know, droughts happen to really nice people and droughts happen to people that aren't so nice but God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous God raises has the sun come up on the evil and the good so that's the first observation right what's it mean to be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect it's this don't discriminate on who you extend love to right now whole conversations about this and this isn't an exhaustive talk and so obviously when it's not safe we're not talking about foolishly um, not having boundaries around certain kinds of people but here's but 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 here's the thing is love is for everybody otherwise you get this irony and, and you'll see this in with religious folks we have a tendency to just go tribal and we draw the circle small, and then suddenly we find ourselves, we're just loving the people that are just like us. But that's the problem with the whole world, right? I mean, do Democrats love Republicans? You know, they kind of used to go to parties and stuff together, but now you just don't have a sense of that, right? Different religions, different denominations. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, in, I'm in Methodism, and there's a big... Um, split going on and one of the things that's broken my heart about this uh, regardless of, of 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 sides is how poorly pastors have acted towards one of another i frankly find it embarrassing 
won't talk, won't sit, label each other and say unkind things. No. Who's love your neighbor as yourself is, is the commandment. Uh, not love your neighbor, hate your enemies. In fact, Jesus cranks up, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Because if you don't do it that way, you're no different than supposedly the people that you would consider to be the bad people or or the evil people, right? Because that's what Jesus says. If you just love those who love you, you're just like a tax collector. And uh, those aren't the good guys. And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, you're just the same as a Gentile. And again, Jesus was speaking to Jews and there's a separation between Jews and Gentiles. And that's an outsider thing. So just notice what Jesus is actually playing with. You think you're an insider. You think you have special access to God. But in fact, you act exactly like the people that you think don't know who God is. That hurts, right? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be indiscriminate in who you love and who you extend love to. Be extravagant with that. Live by faith. Be known by love. So what's it look like to love others, to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, Jesus gives a pretty famous uh, instructions just a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount. He has the famous um, golden rule which in chapter 7, it's in everything due to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. So at minimum, loving our neighbor, loving others, is doing unto them positively the sorts of positive things that you would like them to do for you. So love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So if you want an enemy to become a friend, extend love and pray versus not. Now, there's an important caveat here as well. There's the golden rule, which shows up in Scripture. Again, do unto others as you have, would have them do unto you. But there's also the flip side of that. There's the negative version of the golden rule. And this is what's called the silver rule. And for those of you who are interested, the earliest form I found is in um, this is a, a book on the Apostolic Fathers. This is the Greek text and the English translation, but in an early document called the Didache, which is the Greek word for teaching. This is called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. This is an early book that's not part of the New Testament, uh, but was part of the early Christ-following movement anyway. At the very beginning of it, the Didache talks about two ways of life. And uh, listen to this. Um, uh, verse 2, the way of life is this, first thou shalt love the Lord who made thee, secondly the neighbor as thyself. So echoes Jesus' words about the two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, but then adds this, and this is what gets called the silver rule. Um, whatever you would not have done to yourself, do not do to another. So when we think about... Um, loving others it's both doing the things that we would love others to do for us 
but then also not doing to others the things that we would not want others to do to us. And you can just make a whole list of things that you don't want to be done to you, so you shouldn't be doing those to other people. And again, the exploding thing is here is Jesus, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So this is always about relationships, right? If you only love those who love you, what good is that? If you only greet those who are your brothers and sisters, what good is that? So we're looking for a love that expands, a love that reaches. Now, how do you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Well, it's interesting. In, the ne in chapter 6, Jesus is going to start talking about prayer, and Jesus, is, again, is going to use father language, and he gives the famous Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that in the prayer, and if those of you who have ever said the Lord's Prayer know this right at the heart of it, the only statement about what we can do ourselves shows up towards the end where, depending on your translation, you pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is another translation. In fact, Jesus then restates it after the Lord's Prayer. This is verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So one of the clearest ways what's it mean to be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect well it's love it's an indiscriminate love that includes forgiveness again this isn't a lecture on forgiving people who have done un unspeakable things to you that takes time it's part of spiritual growth to be able to get to the point where we can forgive so there's no shame here there's no judgment in the words that i'm saying but one of the moves that Jesus is making when we talk about becoming perfected in love is to be able to love lavishly and indiscriminately. Again, it doesn't mean without boundaries. We're not telling people who have been abused that somehow they need to put themselves back in harm's way. Absolutely not. But one of the ways that we begin to manifest that is we know we're beginning to open when we begin, we kind of step into forgiveness and find ourselves even able to pray for what a person who was once an enemy, uh, or um, yeah, enough said with, uh, with that. Now also notice that Jesus modeled this himself. Um, first of all, by the way he lived, and if you continue to read through Matthew's gospel or really even Mark or Luke or John, what Jesus continuously did is he challenged the notion of who's my neighbor. And in fact, like the first three miracles that Jesus did in Matthew chapter 8 is he heals leper, a lepers by touching, which you weren't supposed to do. So technically a leper wasn't really your neighbor because you weren't even supposed to touch him. But Jesus touches this guy and heals him. And then he does something really remarkable. He heals a Roman centurion's servant. And who was a Roman centurion? These were the oppressors. These are the people that oppressed God's people, that killed off Jews, that uh, these are going to be the people that ultimately even crucified Jesus. He heals because 
that's what Jesus did. Uh, he even extends the blessings of the kingdom to the oppressor. Just imagine in our culture now where we have cancel culture both ways and uh, two, the two sides won't talk to each other. Just imagine actually how radical it was for in this divided world in the ancient, in the past, that the oppressed, the Jews, Jesus the Jew, actually blesses, serves, and heals the oppressor's servant. And then the last thing that Jesus did is he does something also remarkable. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, you know, and as I joke, that means there's even hope for mother-in-laws. But you know, the point there is Jesus even broke down the boundaries that separated men and women in that ancient culture and uh, took out the time to accept them. So the first three miracles, Jesus is opening up the kingdom. It's not just the people you think are going to be there. It's the people that are desperate for what only God can do. We're going to be there. So Jesus models in his life this opening up towards others. That's what love does. Love opens us. And Jesus extended that by healing, um, by raising people from the dead during his earthly life, the stories tell us, by casting out demons, by creating a new community that wasn't just the orderly people, but Jesus calls fishermen who are like middle-class entrepreneurial business people. You want to think of them in that way. Jesus calls tax collectors who were disliked. He had zealots. He had the whole group of folks that followed him. He created this dynamic community that was centered around becoming a force for good, that we're going to fish for people and share the good news about this kingdom that's coming and begin to live in ways that indicate the kingdom. Now, it's easy enough living out the kingdom or challenging enough living out the kingdom just during life, but Jesus did that. Now, here's what's really remarkable. Jesus also modeled the kingdom powerfully by the way that he died. I just want to point to two stories here when we think about uh, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Um, You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I want to just remind you of two stories. One of them is um, in Matthew's gospel. One of them isn't. Uh, when Jesus was arrested on that very night he was arrested, uh, a group came out to arrest him. And one of the most fascinating things that happened is when uh, the, they show up <clears throat> to arrest him, um, they grab him, and one of the disciples, he's, this is identified as Peter in a different gospel, and John, in Matthew it doesn't say who, who does it, but one of Jesus' disciples takes a sword and defends Jesus and lops off the ear of one of the people that was there to arrest him. And Jesus just says to the disciple there, put your sword, put away your sword, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And if I really wanted to, I could pray to the Father and he could send 12 legions of angels. So, so Jesus had access to the greatest army available, but he didn't use it. And frankly, friend, let's think about it. When's the last time that if we got into a jam and we had some powerful friend or something that was there that we just didn't like, okay, I'll stay, I'll stay in the shadow and let this guy do or this one person do what they got to do to save me. But like Jesus didn't. And in fact, he, instead of um, tell, not only tells his disciple to put away a sword, 
he heals the ear of one of the people that was actually there to arrest him and put him on a cross. That's loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, doing unto others what you would want them to do unto you, even if they won't. But Jesus takes it a step further. And one of my favorite images of Jesus, and this comes from Luke chapter 23. So this isn't in Matthew, but I love this. And in fact, I love this so much that in some ways, this is my favorite Jesus. And sometimes when I go through my periods of doubts, and again, I doubt, I'm not afraid to say that. I'm one of these, um, I believe, Lord, help me with my unbelief problems. I might have been the guy that, uh, when, the, like in Matthew, when they saw the resurrected Jesus and it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Yeah, I'm probably the guy that's there seeing the resurrected Jesus and like, this can't really be true. Or maybe I'm doubting Thomas. I don't know. So I'm just going to own that. All right. But this is why I love Jesus. And I ultimately believe the gospel because here's what, here's what, I, you know, it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You know what? I want to be able God, I really don't want this to ever happen. But the thing I love about Luke 23 is it says when Jesus was on the cross, and we know it happened, and we crucifixions were terrible, he looked the centurions in the face and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. It's the way of Jesus. That's perfection in love. Uh, a couple takeaways. Obviously, um, who's your neighbor? Who are the people that maybe you need to lean in towards a little bit that right now you feel like, ah, those are the enemies? Uh, I don't want to have any enemies. And then also, not just pray for those who persecute you. I'm, I'm like, I'm wondering when I read that text, it's like, Lord, is there somebody out in this planet that might be praying against me because they consider me their enemy? When I hear this text, it doesn't scare me. In fact, if you read in the early church, um, fathers and mothers, especially amongst the monastics, they wholeheartedly believed that you could live out 548. Again, it's not mathematical perfection. It's a privileging of love in all relationships. So I'd suggest, just pray this. Lord, show me the way of love. Show me that perfect love that casts out fear. Show me that love that allows me to see another the way that you see them. Talk about Bob Tuttle a lot, uh, and, uh, and he's been on this podcast several times. But Tuttle always said, uh, "Pray to God that you allow that He would help you to see other people as though they were your own children." And that assumes, of course, you like your kids, right? But uh, assuming you do, that's a game changer. Lord, give me the eyes to see people like you see them. So what's it mean to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect? It's to live our life in a way that we can be salt, that we can be light. 
And we do that um, not by constricting other people, not by extending judgment or leading with judgment. We manifest the kingdom ourselves by modeling that radical love then that amplifies all of the rest of let's say the commandments that show up in the scriptures again by the way this isn't legalism either this is just talking about how do we live a life that demands explanation this isn't a matter of getting acceptance by god the gospel is you're radically accepted already now live like it right so when you read through 517 to 48 like jesus will say you know says don't kill but then he gets at it you know don't even be angry now does that mean you can never be angry of course not but the point is it's just notice that there's a higher standard and jesus wants to amplify the love button so love doesn't need oaths love just means when you say yes to something you mean yes and when you say no to something you mean no and you can work through a radical way of life that will dramatically impact the world. If you don't know where to start, I'd say just suggest a couple of things. Um, and pray, Lord, Lord, um, who's my enemy? And sit with it. Own it. If you have hit lists, write them down. Who, who are your enemies? And you know what? Be perfectly honest, sometimes you have really good reasons that you might consider someone an enemy. But then try to do what Jesus says and, and try to pray, not in a way that hurts you, but just try to begin to pray and maybe slowly over time you can begin to experience forgiveness. And then as you release people, what you're going to notice what happens is even more love flows into your life from God because you know forgiveness really isn't for the other person anyway, it's for us. Because without forgiveness, you just have this cancer that lives inside of you. But forgiveness releases that and allows God's love to flow in you. And then that flows out even more to other people. And we can have the privilege then of being ambassadors of abundance. And the second thing that, that um, uh, we can do is begin to think about, again, that who's my neighbor and begin to reach out outside of your comfort zone and just show up pay attention and just trust as you're engaging with new people making new friends allowing boundaries to break down that god has way more invested in all this than you actually do bless and serve it's easy what's the path of love it's walking the road that's right in front of us loving indiscriminately the people that you run into so that through our interactions with them, through the deeds that we do, the way that we live our lives, the language that we use, the compassion that we show, they'll give thanks to our Father in heaven for that. Again, love to hear any feedback if you found this helpful. Uh, grateful for those of you who have listened all the way to the end of this episode. Again, reach out, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, be a voice of hope to others, and pray, Lord, show me the path of love.